Hi, everybody. This is Tommy James, and I'm the next guest on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Welcome, I'm Brian Zemrak, your host of On Screen and Beyond, and this is episode 108 of our show. And this week, we have a very special show with our annual summer movie preview. We're going to take a look at all the movies that are coming out this summer, the blockbusters, or maybe flops. We don't know. We'll find out what happens with those. And... We have a very special guest coming your way on our interview segment. It's Tommy James. That's right, Tommy James of the Tommy James and the Shondells. He gave us such hits as Moni Moni. Who hasn't heard that one at a party? Uh, Crimson and Clover, Dragon the Line, and so many more. That's coming up in a little bit. Tommy has a new book out. And he's got some great stories to share with us. Hope you're going to stick around for that. Don't forget about our contest. You can get all the details at onscreenandbeyond.com. And you could have yourself a chance to win a double-featured DVD, either a horror one or an action movie one. Okay? And uh, we give you all the details there on onscreenandbeyond.com. Check it out. And it's real simple to enter. All you got to do is send us a uh, email at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. Tell us if you want to win the... Horror or the action one. That's as simple as that. Not too much to do there. And we're going to have a drawing, and we will pick one. But you must send an individual email for the two entries, okay? So, you know, because we're going to be drawing, and we can't draw if you have one. So, anyway, send those out to us, and we'll have... uh give you a chance to win a dvd that's from the people of magnolia home entertainment who have teamed up with us on that and those movies that they're giving away are going to be released in stores on may 4th and that's when our contest ends so if you don't win you can also go out and get those so uh, check those out all right let's see it's time to check out what's coming your way as far as this summer's movies please hang up and try again well, as far as the summer movie preview, we're going to start off with May. May seems to be the month with the biggest ones, at least uh, that's what it seems like. Iron Man 2 is probably going to be the biggest one. It arrives to save the world on May 7th. It stars Robert Downey Jr. once again, and it's probably going to be a huge hit. On May 14th, a superhero of old uh, comes to theaters. Robin Hood, starring Russell Crowe and directed by Ridley Scott. That one's uh, most likely going to be a big one, too. May 21st, look for Shrek Forever After and MacGruber. And those arrive in theaters, as I said, on May 21st. Then on May 27th, Carrie and the Girls are back in Sex and the City 2. And the next day, on May 28th, Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal. And it's from movie producer Jerry Bruckheimer. So you know there's going to be a lot of things blowing up or whatever on that one. And let's uh, take a break and find out what's coming away in June, right here on On Screen and Beyond.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our summer movie preview continues with the month of June. June 4th, the kids will look forward to Marmaduke. And on June 11th, the A-Team remake and the remake of The Karate Kid will arrive. On June 18th, the sequel, Toy Story 3, hits theaters. And on June 30th, the Twilight Saga Eclipse continues with the Twilight stories. And you you get a feeling here that there's going to be a lot of remakes and sequels here coming this summer. That's not all of them. There's more coming. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming away in July for summer movies on the Summer Movie Preview from On Screen and Beyond. The month of July, summer preview. Looks like The Last Airbender glides into theaters, as does Night and Day with Tom Cruise on July 2nd. And on July 9th, Predators with Topher Grace, Lawrence Fishburne, and Adrian Brody arrives in theaters. On July 16th, The Sorcerer's Apprentice with Nicolas Cage hits the big screen. July 23rd, you can look for Salt with Angelina Jolie as a CIA agent accused of being a sleeper spy. And it looks like Cats and Dogs, Revenge of Kitty Galore with the voice talents of uh, Christina Applegate, Neil Patrick Harris, Bette Midler, Nick Nolte, and Chris O'Donnell will be in theaters on July 30th. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way in the month of August for summer movie previews right here on On Screen and Beyond. All right, as far as August, August 6th, you can look for The Other Guys with Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg and Michael Keaton and Samuel L. Jackson and Eva Mendez as it explodes in theaters, and it's going to be about, uh, it's a cop comedy, basically. On August 13th, uh, Jason Stratum and Mickey Rourke, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jet Lee, Steve Austin, and Bruce Willis are the expendables as a bunch of mercenaries hired to overthrow a dictator. And on August 20th, Takers takes you inside the world of a group of criminals. It stars Matt Dillon, Hayden Christensen, and Chris Brown as bank robbers. And on August 20th, you can check out Nanny McPhee and the Big Bang as it arrives along with Piranha 3D. That's about it for the summer movie preview from On Screen and Beyond. Coming up next, we have a singing icon. We have Tommy James of Tommy James and the Shondells. Tommy has had hit after hit after hit. He's still making songs, still making hits, writing books. He's going to have a movie. He's going to have a Broadway play. He's got all sorts of things in the works, and he's going to talk about all that next, right here on On Screen and Beyond.
My guest on this edition of On Screen and Beyond has 23 gold singles, 9 gold and platinum albums. He has given us such hits as Hanky Panky, Money Money, Crimson and Clover, Crystal Blue Persuasion, and Dragon Line. That's just to name a few. He has a new book out called Me, the Mob, and the Music. It's Tommy James. Tommy, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. How are you? It is fantastic to have you on here. Well, it's great to talk with you. And uh, like I was telling you earlier, it's, it's um, you know, I've always enjoyed your music. You're, you're a music icon. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thanks for the great intro. Oh, that's, you're welcome. Uh, now, Tommy, uh, we'll start off with your book because uh, that is so intriguing that, uh, you know, the second you mention mob. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and a magic word, isn't it? Right. And, well, and of course, without, you know, you could have done without that and everybody would have read it anyways because, you know, your music is, I mean, <laughs> l- let's face it. How many times has a disc jockey or uh, anybody who has a party not played Moni Moni? Well, that's very true. You know, the, the thing of it is, though, uh, very few of the fans, virtually none of the fans, and very few of the radio people or distributors really knew what was going on up at Roulette Records. Really? And, uh, um, you know, th- this book, Me, the Mob, and the Music, we were originally going to call it Crimson and Clover and write a book about music and the hits, and it would have been interesting, but... Mm-hmm. We got about a third of the way through, Martin Fitzpatrick and I, my co-writer, and, you know, realized we're only telling half the story. And that the, this, we've got to tell the whole roulette story um, uh, if it's going to make any sense. And I have been very reluctant over the years talking about roulette, um, even though we had great success up there, because, uh, well, frankly, roulette, in addition to being a functioning record company, was also a front for the Genovese crime family in New York. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we didn't know that when we signed. Right. And we, we learned this incrementally, and essentially this is what the book is about, is about us, uh, my relationship with Roulette Records and Morris Levy, the head of the label, very tumultuous and crazy relationship, I might add, uh, but also how we learned uh, where we were and who we were dealing with, and... Um, trying to have a music career uh, in the midst of this very dark and dangerous story behind it. Yeah. And we re- I really was uncomfortable talking about this until the last of the uh, roulette regulars, as I call them, passed on, and mm-hmm. that was in December of '05. Wow. And uh, so I, I felt that after that we could, you know, we, we ended up putting the book on the shelf for a couple of years because... I was really concerned about talking about all this. I'm sure. Jeez. I mean, so finally, after '05, we figured uh, uh, the, the couple that are still around are probably on walkers, and I can probably outrun them. <laughs> so we, we basically finished the story, and it was very therapeutic for me telling this story. I've wanted to tell it for a long time. Really? Yeah. Now, starting out at the very beginning, was your goal always to be a you know a rock star? <clears throat> well, I you know I was always uh, I always had my ear in a loudspeaker of one kind or another as, uh, as long as I can remember. Um, even when I was a little tiny kid, I always loved the radio and music, and I I got a ukulele from my grandfather when I was four years old, wow. and I learned everything on the radio that I could learn, you know, all the popular songs of the day. This is like the very early 1950s. And then uh, when I was nine years old, I got a guitar, mm-hmm. 
and it was an acoustic guitar and um, started you know basically I taught myself how to play because really what I wanted to do was sing and play and when I was um, 10 the next year I got my first electric guitar and then I started practicing this is like 1957 and who was your idols back at that time? You well, the first generation rock and rollers were my big heroes mm -hmm. and uh, inspirations because um, uh, that's what was on the radio. You know, Gene Vincent, Buddy Holly, yeah. Elvis, uh, the Everly Brothers, um, Eddie Cochran, guys like that. And I learned everything I could. And um, when I was 12 years old, I started my first band. Tommy and the Tornadoes. Tommy right? and the Tornadoes. That's right. <laughs> and I, uh, we played for uh, uh, my uh, seventh grade variety show, <laughs> and we put the drummer together, and we had I think a piano player and a, a horn player, and uh, and me, and uh, we played. Uh, I think our first song was "Lonesome Town" by Ricky Nelson mm -hmm. in front of my. Uh, my seventh grade class, actually seventh, eighth, and ninth, and it was that was that was my scariest moment. Actually, it was was my first uh, time getting up in front of my schoolmates. Uh, I actually had been on television uh, the year before, but only as a solo act. I'd never had a group before. Oh, so we kept the group together and played, you know, Elks clubs. And this is back in my hometown of Niles, Michigan, and. At 12 years old? Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm amazed my folks let me do it yeah. because, uh, you know, I'm amazed they didn't send me to my room, you know, for about 20 years. <laughs> yeah. So now, how did you come about uh, recording Hanky Panky? I mean, you, you were 12 years old? I started the band when I was 12. We, um, uh, I got a job shortly thereafter in a record shop uh, in Michigan, Niles, Michigan, a little place called The Spinet. And... Um, you know, I sold records after school and on Saturdays. I learned the trade papers. I could also promote my band out of the record shop, which was a, a gas for back then. Mm -hmm. And we actually had two little regional label deals before I was out of high school. The first one was when I was 14. That's amazing. It, it, I, it is when you think about it, I guess. It didn't seem that way at the time, but... I mean, you didn't have all kinds of promoters and everything with you, right? No, this was true just you enough, a... but we, the, the, one of the distributors, the one-stop distributors that would drop off records at the record shop, had a little label called Northway Sound in Michigan, and we recorded for his label. And it came out, and it was on the jukeboxes, and it was fun. But then it died, and, and uh, two years later, when I was 16, we got asked by uh, one of the local disc jockeys, uh, Jack Douglas, who... Uh, was the morning man at WNIL in, in Niles, uh, at, was starting a little label called Snap Records mm -hmm. and asked us if uh, we would record for him, and so we did. And one of the four sides we did, this is 1963 and 64, one of the four sides we did was uh, Hanky Panky. Mm -hmm. I was a uh, uh, sophomore in high school, and... Um, uh, when we signed, and I, this came out in early '64, uh, when I guess I was a junior, and um, uh, you know it, it went number one in about you know eight square blocks, and then it died too. But we were on the jukeboxes, and it was good experience, and we kind of forgot about the record. And I graduated from high school in '65, 
and I took my band on the road and we're working up through Chicago and up through the Midwest and we were playing a club in early 66 in Janesville, Wisconsin. I'll never forget this. And right in the middle of our two weeks, um, the club goes belly up, gets shut down by the IRS. Oh, geez. And so we are all heartbroken and dejected and feeling like failures and we got to go home back to Niles. But that's how the good Lord works because uh, as soon as I got home, I got a call that Hanky Panky uh, had been bootlegged in Pittsburgh and they sold 80,000 of them in 10 days and we were sitting at number one in the city of Pittsburgh. Wow. And if I hadn't have been home at that moment, I would have never got that call. Jeez. So uh, I couldn't put the original Shondells back. To, by the way, we had changed our name from the Tornadoes to the Shondells. Right. Yeah. And um, I couldn't put the original group back together, so I went alone to Pittsburgh and did TV and interviews and stuff and picked up uh, a group in Pittsburgh. This is probably April of 66. Picked up uh, a group. Uh, you know, bar musicians basically playing oh, clubs yeah. as the rack contours um, to be the Shondells, and they were great, really. And I brought them to New York. Uh, two weeks later, we were um, selling the master to one of the major labels uh, to go national, and because we had a regional breakout out of Pittsburgh, so uh, we got a yes from everybody: Columbia, Epic, RCA. Atlantic, Camus, remember Camus Sutra records back Yes, then. I do, yeah. <laughs> and um, so we're feeling great. And the last place they took the record to was uh, Roulette. And so I went to sleep that night. We stayed at the at a hotel in downtown Manhattan. And the next morning, I wake up, and one by one, all the record companies call back and say, listen, we got a pass. Yeah. And I said, what do you mean you got a pass? I thought we had a deal. And finally, Jerry Wexler at Atlantic uh, leveled with us that Morris Levy from Roulette Records had called all the record companies one by one and said, this is my record, back off. <laughs> and they did, man, and that was, you know, he scared everybody. Wow. And um, uh, we were apparently going to be on Roulette Records. That's actually how it happened. Jeez. Huh. Now, when did you first realize that, you know, there might be some <laughs> funny things going on here? Well, you know, we had heard uh, about roulette and, and their reputation, but we didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. Uh, red flags started going off all over the place, though. Uh, the day we signed, um, I'll never forget the day we, we signed with roulette. Um, you know, Morris Levy was right out of the movies. I mean, he really was a gangster, and and uh, but he also had pretty good ears which is amazing uh, he could hear hits but you know he was financed by the genovese family yeah and uh, uh while we're signing two thugs walk in basically i got to know who they were later but uh you know and signal for morris and he gets up and goes over and talks to him and you can hear what's the conversation and they just had beaten some guy out in New Jersey with baseball bats because he was pirating records. Wow. And so we're hearing all this, and I'm going, oh, my God, what have we got ourselves into? <laughs> and um, I'll never forget Red Schwartz, the promotion man, turns and says, tries to small talk with us. Says, oh, your first trip to New York, Tom. You know? And <laughs> so anyway, and then gradually we'd see very strange characters hanging out up at Roulette. And uh, 
bringing in bags of something and then not leaving them with the same bags, you know, and right. stuff like that. And then, you know, we'd meet somebody up in Morris's office, and two weeks later we'd be watching TV and on the news and seeing him, you know, doing the perp walk out of a, a warehouse in New Jersey, you know, being arrested for something. And, um, you know, we'd say, wasn't that the guy we just met up in Morris's office? Jeez. And, you know, this the kind of stuff kept happening, and we finally realized who we were dealing with. Yeah. Did you guys all get together and say, you know, okay, let's not say a word, be, <laughs> let's be nice? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Um, we had to constantly make a decision of, you know, weighing the good and the bad. On one level, doing business with roulette was a disaster. You know, you weren't getting paid royalties. You know, they just weren't going to pay. Uh, yeah. And... Um, uh, you couldn't do anything about it because uh, you weren't just dealing with Morris Levy, you were dealing with the people that he was dealing with. Right. Yeah. Uh, but at a creative level, it probably was the best decision we could make because if we had signed with one of the corporate labels, you know, RCA or Columbia, one of the, one of the uh, you know, bigger, bigger labels, we probably would have been handed to a producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would have got lost in the numbers, especially with a record like Hanky Panky, and nobody would have heard from us again. Yeah, yeah. At Roulette, they actually needed us. You know, they hadn't had a hit in a couple of years, yeah. and they were a record company, even though they had all this other stuff going on. And, um, you know, they genuinely needed us, so they left us alone and allowed us to really do our thing, and... Um, stay in the studio and become whatever we could become so i was at a creative level it was great right oh yeah and also you know i i every time i go to say something nasty about morris or roulette you know i remember that you know if it hadn't have been for morris levy there wouldn't have been a tommy james right yeah yeah and, and i mean they must have loved it because you guys were cranking out the hits like crazy well yeah we you know this the thing about it was um Nobody sold singles better than Roulette. I mean, they really were masters of selling singles. They were not particularly good at albums, but the album market hadn't really happened yet. Right. So singles were everything. And uh, pretty soon my life became, you know, getting the next single in the can ready to go. And um, But the other side of that is that if I hadn't been you know, basically forced to work that hard, we probably wouldn't have had that many hits. Right, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, every time I go to say something, there's a comma beside it. You know, yeah, but, you know. Yeah. So that's what I was, those conflicts are basically what the book is about, all these mixed emotions about all this stuff. Right, yeah, I'm sure. Gee. Now, uh, with all the hits that you had, is there any particular one that that's, is the closest to you, your heart, that you like the best? Well, besides the first record, Hanky Panky, yeah. probably the most important record after that was Crimson and Clover. Not just because it was the biggest single, mm-hmm. but Crimson and Clover um, was the one record that allowed us to go from AM top 40 singles to FM progressive album rock. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's another record we ever did that would have allowed us to make that pivot as gracefully as we did, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe at all. Yeah. 
Um, uh, also, there were a couple of other things. Crimson and Clover um, was the moment where we broke off with our producers and really began producing and writing and performing and doing everything ourselves. Did you enjoy that aspect of yes, doing everything? I loved making records. I still do to this day. Um, I'm I'm a record. I'm a studio junkie. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, third, we were. Um, you know, we were uh, out on the Humphrey campaign with Hubert Humphrey that at that yeah, moment I saw when that. we wrote Crimson and Clover and actually began recording it. And um, uh, that was a momentous time because of the issues that were going on in the country and just the, the state that the country was in. And to be involved in the 68 election was really a moment in history that uh, I'll never forget. Plus the fact Hubert Humphrey then wrote the liner notes to the Crimson Clover album. Right, yeah, that, that's something in itself. That had never happened before. Yeah, that's, it's not, <laughs> you don't hear that very no. often. And, and honestly, uh, Crimson and Clover was just at that pivotal moment when it was like the perfect storm. Everything just came together for us. And as a result of Crimson and Clover, we were able to go on where so many of our friends, you know, when we left on the Humphrey campaign uh, in August of 68, it was all singles acts. It was us, the Rascals, the Association, Gary Puckett, Buckinghams. When we got off that uh, campaign in November, it was... Joe Cocker, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, all album acts. Yeah. In 90 days, the record, the universe, our universe turned upside down. And if we had not had Crimson and Clover at that moment, our career probably would have ended right there. Jeez. Hmm. Like so many of our contemporaries. Right, oh yeah. A lot of them don't last, that's for yeah. sure. And what strikes me funny is though, Hubert Humphrey doesn't strike me as a Tommy James and the Shondells kind of guy. You wouldn't think so. <laughs> yeah, you but, know. But, you know, the truth is we became great friends. Really? And he asked me to be president's advisor on youth affairs if he ran, which was going to be a... You know, he, he really was concerned that the youth vote was so alienated from... Mm-hmm. Um, from him and them, and that that the country was coming apart like it was. Right, politics in general. Yeah, and and of course that was back when we all thought a politician could actually do something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Silly us. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, uh, that was a, a an amazing moment uh, in our history, and I was really glad to be a part of it. Yeah. Now, Moni Moni, you wrote, you co-wrote that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you, you most of your big hits you co-wrote with somebody. Correct. And um, how did you come about Moni Moni? What's well, Moni Moni was, uh, of course, we had done that in early '68, and um, we had just come off an amazing year. You know, 1967, we were voted Artist of the Year in Billboard, and and we'd had five hit singles and three hit albums that year it was just I think we're alone now um, getting together and uh, uh, the first uh, volume of greatest hits and so we were it was a 67 was a wonderful year Mm. so we wanted to do something different in 68 and um, I had always loved party rock 
You know, there were certain songs, California Sun, Money, right. uh, certain Louis Louis, certain songs that would always, you love playing them live because of what they would do to people. Yeah. You know, people would just immediately hit the dance floor. Oh, and they, yeah. So we wanted to make one of those. And uh, up until then, we had pretty much been uh, doing the, you know, the dum 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 dum, you know, the, mm -hmm. the eighth notes and, and, um, uh, we really wanted to make a change in our sound, and so we just basically Moni Moni became, uh, you know, was every party rock record I ever heard, you know, uh, all kind of put into one like a tossed salad. And we actually had done the did the track before we wrote the song. Huh. And um, so we wrote the song around this track that we had put together, Richie Cordell and I, and. It was the night before I was supposed to do the vocals, and we still had no title. We had all the words, but we didn't have a title, and we knew it had to be a two-syllable girl's name. And but it had to be silly sounding. You know, we're looking for like a uh, Sloopy or right. Bony Maroney, yeah. or those kind of names, you know. <laughs> yeah. And everything sounded so stupid. So we threw our guitars down. We're up at my apartment in New York. And we walk out onto my terrace and light up a cigarette, and we look up into the night sky, and we the first thing our eyes fall on is Mutual of New York Insurance Company, M-O-N-Y, mm -hmm. with the little dollar sign in the middle of the O, and it gave you the time and the weather. And we were just looking at this thing, and all of a sudden it clicks with both of us at the same time. We both start laughing because that was perfect. Yeah, That was the perfect name. And it had been—it's like God just gave us the title. Here's the title, <laughs> and and you know, I we just started to laugh, and that of course became the title. We, I've often said if we'd have been looking in the other direction, we were so desperate we would have called it Howard Johnson, or <laughs> maybe Hotel Taft or something. I don't know, but um, you know, that's just—that's a true story. It sounds like it was made up by a press agent, but that actually yeah. happened. Wouldn't wouldn't have had the same ring if it was. No. Uh -uh. <laughs> Now, does your book carry uh, carry on from right when you started all the way till the present, or is it stop and start uh, start and stop at a certain? Well, it time? actually starts and stops um, with uh, the bookends are the are, are Morris when Morris died, the night ah. Morris died, mm -hmm. and this is 1990, mm -hmm. and the book opens up with um, uh, you know I was I was Morris had had gotten cancer and was convicted of racketeering and he was going to prison and ended up dying before he could serve a day of prison hmm. and uh, uh, that opens the book and um, this actually happened this is exactly the way it happened I was playing a gig in Chicago the next day and go up to Morris's farm which is where he was yeah. upstate New York and uh, he died that night Wow! and I couldn't get back and I find out in the middle of an interview, hmm. and it was a you know a young kid from Chicago at, at a newspaper, and and I learned Morris dies right in the middle of the interview, and he says, "Who's Morris Levy?" <laughs> and um, I then tell him this whole story, and that's the that's the book. Wow! And it gets to the end, and um, <clears throat> uh, when the <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> when the story ends, 
uh, it brings us right up back up to uh, that moment, and that's where the book ends. And I then have a little epilogue of this sort of imaginary conversation with Morris because I'm never going to be able to talk to him about all the things I wanted to say to him. I, I was never going to get a chance to do that. So I had this sort of imaginary conversation with him, and that's how the book ends. Sounds like a movie. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> it's going to be a movie in 18 months. That's what I understand. That's yeah. great. Jeez. And uh, it's uh, produced by Barry Rosen and Mary Gleason for Triangle Pictures, and it's going to be uh, uh, really, a, I think it's going to make a, a really great story. It's oh, going to yeah. Be a major movie. And then it's going to be a Broadway play. Oh, geez, you're you're busy. <laughs> We're going to be very busy over the next couple of years. Yeah. But that's good. And I I just am so grateful that uh, you know people have taken to this like they have. We only released the book about six weeks ago, and it's just been amazingly received by the media and the public. And I I couldn't be happier because you never I've never been an author before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you never really know if. You know, if you got your point across, right. or if oh, you yeah. know you, you, you know, you put a lot of heart into it, but you don't really know if people are gonna, you know, receive it like you meant it. And uh, uh, I'm just so happy they did. I, you know, yeah, that's great. Jeez. Well, I want to just to finish up a few things here, if we can. Sure. Um, that, now, uh, is this true that you guys were offered to go to Woodstock and perform at Woodstock, the original yeah. Woodstock? That actually happened. Really? We were in Hawaii, and we're literally at the foot of Diamond Head in a in a Spanish villa. Uh, in between the two dates we were playing out there, they were like two weeks apart. That we played Hilo and then Honolulu. Yeah. And um, my secretary Joanne calls me from New York um, uh, on like I think it was Monday and said that, uh, listen, uh, one of the principals who uh, uh, was a promoter, uh, Artie Kornfeld, was a friend, and uh, uh, he also was, uh, you know, a really great producer. Produced the Cow Sills and, and a whole bunch of hit records with different people. He mm-hmm. really was uh, a masterful producer, and he was one of the uh, promoters of the show, and uh, Joanne had spoken to him, and she says, I already asked you to come up and want to play this pig farm in upstate New York. And I said, what did you say? She said, well, it's, he says it's going to be a big gig. There's going to be a lot of important people there, and I uh, wonder if you'd come. And I said, you're asking me to fly 6,000 miles, leave paradise, and play a pig farm? Is that what you just said to me? I said, well, I'll tell you what. If we're not there, start without us. And uh, hung up the phone, and and uh, by Thursday, or by Friday that week, we knew we messed up really bad. Yeah. Hey, that happens. <laughs> really bad. <laughs> and uh, so, but I have gotten a lot of mileage out of the story, actually. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, two quick questions here. Um, favorite movies of all time for you? So, well, see, I my problem is that my favorite movies are like 50s science fiction that's fine that's right whatever you know what i mean you know two of my favorite movies are creature from the black lagoon i love that one and them them yes yes i liked invasion (laughs) of the body snatchers too the original or the remake the original yes (laughs) that was a scary oh yeah, yeah yeah and um what about tv shows do you watch any tv I do. I, you know, I find myself uh, 
you know, I guess I'm a sloppy old, uh, you know, I don't know what, you know, square. I guess I, my favorite shows. Um, of course, I love sports. I, you know, I'm a mm-hmm. big Yankee fan in New York, and mm-hmm. I, uh, uh, man, I, I, boy, well, I love reruns of Seinfeld. Yeah, good show. They're my favorite, and uh, uh, you know, I watch a lot of uh, science shows. I watch um, a lot of, uh, you know, shows about uh, astronomy and space. Mm -hmm. I'm a cadet, you know. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, I, and I, I, you know, it's like I don't watch a lot of prime time. Yeah, yeah. I used to. Yeah, yeah. Don't know what has happened, but I'm on the internet a lot. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm on my computer a lot. Hey, Tommy, um, I know we're getting near to the end here, and I appreciate you taking the time. We're That's gonna... okay. We can go for a few minutes. Oh, all right. That's great. And, uh, all right. Another question about um, your, your music writing. Um, your, you wrote Tighter and Tighter, I understand. That's right. Wrote and produced it. Alive In fact, and uh, Sandy from Alive and Kicking was just out here a couple of weeks ago. Oh, really? Home. Yeah. Um, Tighter, tighter happened at that. I, the Shondells and I sort of parted company in 1970. I went on and had, uh, you know, another solo career. But um, uh, right in that little moment, right there, where you know, it wasn't like we parted enemies or anything. We were just taking six months off. Yeah. And uh, by the way, today, you know, my best friends are the Shondells and. and uh, you know, when you make it together, you really are, you truly are like brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I um, uh, began producing other acts uh, before I began producing myself again. And in 1970, I uh, produced uh, Alive and Kickin' with Tighter Tighter. I had originally written a song for myself with Bob King, my writing partner. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we did a track on it, and I brought in Jimmy Wisner, who, by the way, was our, since I think we're alone, that was sort of our George Martin. He uh, really was a, a great orchestrator. And we brought him in, and I did, he did the horns and, and uh, uh, the, the very basic rhythm track. And I really liked the way the track was, but I did not like the way I sang it. Uh-huh. Okay. And so I thought of this group that... Uh, Alive and Kicking was a, a great local group. They were out of Brooklyn, and uh, they were managed by my wife's best friend. And uh, so they asked me to produce them, and I just never had time. And finally I said, you know, this would be a great song for them. I rewrote it as a duet with a guy and a girl and yeah. brought them into the studio, and they were great. That's I sang song, background yeah. and played a little guitar and put their guitar player and organist on. By the way, the... The keyboard player was Bruce Sedano, who was in Brooklyn Dreams and married Donna Summer. Oh. <laughs> so um, uh, they sang it, did a great job. I took it to Roulette, and they had a number one record with it. It was oh, yeah. my first outside production. Now, was it tough when you know you wrote that song originally for you yeah. to, to, to give it to somebody and, and have them do it? Did, did you sometimes say, oh, I wish... It had been a little bit different, well, even though you're I, in control. You know, to some extent, they are, these songs do become like your children, you know. Right, yeah. And you feel like you're giving one away. But um, I was a very, I felt like I had a very integral part of the record since, uh, you know, I sang on it, background on it, and played some guitar. And, and uh, we did it at our studio, and I produced it on my, you know, we, we put their 
players on top of our track. So I really felt that, uh, you know, I was sort of the sixth musician there. And uh, honestly, I felt very good about giving it to them. I can't think of another act I would have rather given it to. What about the, I mean, let's face it, your songs have been remade probably more than a lot of artists ever get remade. You know, we've had over 300 cover versions of our songs. Really? Yeah. And, and, and how uh, does that feel when, you know... Well, it's great. You know, honestly, I'm 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 very flattered and honored when uh, a group or an act takes uh, one of our songs and redoes it because uh, uh, it keeps the music in front of the public, and it, but it also, um, you know, is, I... I I wear that as a badge of honor. I really do. You know, Prince just this last year did redid Crimson and Clover again on his digital album mm-hmm. and it went number one. Wow! And um, uh, you know, we've averaged about three movies a year with you know the songs in them. And, right. Yeah. And uh, I've, I've I've really been very happy with uh, with the with the remakes of the songs. I'm really very flattered and honored. Yeah. And there's so many so many good. I mean, you know. So many different songs you put out, and and your solo career with you know dragging the line. I mean, you know that was. Well, we, you know, we've I've been very lucky. This is a business that gives you two or three years, and we've been doing it for forty plus. And you're still going strong. Yeah, we uh, uh, honestly, um, uh, you know, we're in an amazing time right now. Uh, it's it's very difficult uh, to see sometimes where this is going, but the music business is going through a major shift. And um, you know, we grew all grew up in the disc business, and the disc business is basically over. But the music business is is fine, mm-hmm. and the delivery system is is being reinvented. And um, uh, of course, downloads are a huge part of that. But I really believe that. The greatest challenge today is getting new music in front of the fans, mm-hmm. and it isn't just for me. I mean, for everybody, getting right. new music in front of the fans because radio's pretty much over as far as uh, getting new music to people. I mean, they occasionally they do, but basically, radio has to be reinvented too. Mm-hmm. I think what's going to happen is once we have high def TV really up and running. Uh, I think the whole industry is going to move to television because that's where the people are. Yep. Oh, yeah. And I also think that uh, the Internet, you know, being uh, high-def TV being a combination of television and Internet technology, I think we're going to have, you know, your TV is going to be your iPod. Right. I think we're going to have, and by the way, one of the things I'm very happy that the iPod has done is bring back the singles market. Oh yeah, they, that, you know, that's the greatest I mean, it really thing. It has, I mean, that, that you know, because the albums were always sort of a contrivance of the record companies, you know. Yeah. yeah. And um, what I think is going to happen is, I think we're going to have, you know, the Sony Channel. I think we're going to have the Warner Channel, and I also think we're going to have video radio to to a huge extent, different mm-hmm. than now. I think we're going to have. Uh, you remember what Imus did uh, twelve years ago, where he put his radio show on TV and it became the number right. one morning show. Yep. Well, there's no reason you can't do that with music radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think we have so many stations already up and running. All you got to do is put digital cameras into the radio booth and you've got a television show. Right. Yeah. And I think we're going to have networks of these 
video radio stations probably have a moderator or something in New York and say, let's throw it out to Seattle now to, you know, KX, okay, something, and, and somebody out in Seattle will play a couple of tunes and then you'll throw it to Miami and, you know, and we'll probably then have downloading databases based on the airplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you'll have charts back again. Yeah, I always like charts. <laughs> yeah, I did too. And I think that's gonna. I think that's gonna happen. I think all of that's gonna happen as soon as we have high def TV. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy, we. I mean, there's so much to cover. I mean, it's unbelievable. Maybe we can get you back again well, another that time. That would be fine because this has been a blast. Love to talk with you. Yeah, and I uh, appreciate you doing this. My pleasure. Well, I want to thank Tommy so much for talking with us. He's a great guest. I love talking with him. A lot of great stories. Check out his book, Me, the Mob, and the Music. A hell of a ride with Tommy James and the Shondells. And uh, we got a link right on our site where you can go to Tommy's site and uh, check out where he's going to be, too, where he's going to be playing and all that sort of stuff. A uh, lot of great hits. Uh, Money, Money, Crimson and Clover, Dragon the Line, Sweet Cherry Wine. Uh, the list just goes on and on and on. Hanky Panky. Um, you know, a lot of great music. Check it out. Get some of his music because it's just so good. And uh, let's see. I want to remind you about the contest we're having right now at On Screen and Beyond. You can... Uh, Go to onscreenandbeyond.com, get all the details, but basically you get a chance to win yourself a horror double feature or an action double feature. Simply send us an email telling us which one. You're going to send one email for each DVD that you want to win. So all we're going to do is draw our name out, get ourselves a winner. So uh, that's about it for now. Until next time, this is Brian. Take care. (laughs) 